Welcome to the Wellness Revolution Podcast, the radio show all about wellness in your mind, body, spirit, personal growth, sex, and relationships. Stay tuned for weekly interviews featuring guests that have achieved physical, mental, and spiritual health in their lives. If you'd like to have access to our entire back catalog, visit drveronica.com for instant access. And here is your host, Dr. Veronica. Thanks for coming back to the Wellness Revolution. I'm Dr. Veronica. I have with me today a doctor you're going to want to hear from because he's going to tell you the secret to getting old. And guess what? It's not how many doctors you go to and not that you live close to the emergency room. And it has nothing to do with your genes. You think your DNA is talking about it, but it's not your DNA that's going to do this. It's something completely different that we don't talk about it. And so today I welcome to you, Dr. Mario Martinez. You got to know his book. You got to go out and get this. The Mind, Body, Self, How Longevity is Culturally Learned and the Causes of Health are Inherited. Now, we're talking about how it's culturally learned. Um, So I'm going to start, I like to start with a little bit of story. My um, husband is from West Africa, from a country called Benin, and that country is a dollar a day country. People live on a dollar a day. You go there, it's very poor, the hospitals suck, there's disease and famine all around, yet there are people in his family that have managed to get to their 80s and beyond in this third world country, and they're not rich. And they don't run to the doctor all the time. What's going on here? We now have a lady who's in Jamaica, which is another country that we know we like to go there to vacation, but it's considered an undeveloped country, a more of a third world country. She's 117. Her son is 97. What's that all about? They don't have the best doctors and hospitals in the world. So what's going on here? And we all want to know what the secret is. Not only are these people 117 and 97, they're also living lives that I meet people who are 50 and 60, and these people who are 117 look better than them. So let's talk about this. Now we're in a time where there's a big healthcare debate. We're here in America where fear mongering, it doesn't matter what side politically you're on, is about whether you're going to have access to care. And I want to argue that It may be that when you don't have access to care, you are much better off. So, Dr. Mario Martinez, thanks so much for being on. First of all, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this level of research. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I have some good news. Well, my training is in clinical neuropsychology. And uh, as I was trained, as you uh, were, uh, I, I was trained to learn about the pathology of the brain. What happens when there's with pathology of the brain and, and what do you do with it? And in some cases, you just watch it happen. And, well, that's how it is. And so I wanted to go beyond that. I, there's, a, there's a sense that I had that it just wasn't that way because I was seeing evidence of people who were older who never went to the doctor. And, and I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying reporting it almost like from an anthropology point of view. And I started studying centenarians, but only healthy centenarians all over the world. I wanted to see what happens uh, with the sample that you want to look into. If you, a good science looks at what works and then creates theories about it to see how you can replicate it. So what I found, number one, that it's not genetics. I found that genetics is only 20% of that longevity. I also found that the way they live is really 
what allows them to have that longevity. And they don't try to live long. It's just the way they live. It was thought that it was socioeconomics, that it's gender, that it's where the areas where they live. It's none of that. It's not the diet. Uh, some of them live uh, and they eat uh, uh, fish, some of them dairy, some of them meat. And what I found was that there's a way to look at them, a model to look at them, because unfortunately, medicine is outstanding when you have acute problems. You have an acute problem and it, it, it's wonderful. But systemic problems, it, it fails miserably because it tries to fix something from the outside that needs to be fixed from the inside. So what I found from centenarians is that I had to create a language. And the language is that we are born with the propensity to pay attention to, to people that have power in their context and that have a lot of power in our, in our conservation. And the first one is the mother or the figure that's there when you're born. So we, we learn our, our brain is not, is not designed like a computer. The, the brain looks for what I call the culture editors. And the first culture editor is the mother. You, you're hungry. And you have a certain psychoneuroimmunology. You have hormones and you have uh, um, uh, neuromaps that are going on and you have all kinds of things. Hunger, that's the hunger cluster. Then you see something that comes to you, a breast, or you see a, a bottle. And then after you have that, then the hunger subsides and you have another set of psychoneuroimmunology, like in the endorphins and oxytocin and other kind of things. So what happens is as you have those reactions, those symbols become biosymbols. The bottle becomes a biosymbol. The mother becomes a biosymbol. And then later you have a language and you say, oh, that's a mother. That's this, that's that. And we have other culture editors, which are the teachers in school, doctors in clinical uh, areas, uh, the uh, clergy in, in, in certain uh, temples and so forth. So we pay attention to that. And that, that can have a placebo, a good effect, or a nocebo effect. So what happens then is that these people, what, what I've realized is that uh, I'm bringing anthropology and psychoneuroimmunology together here. So what, what happens is that our cultures will tell us the cultural portals that we need to live, live in. And the cultural portals are uh, infancy, childhood, uh, adolescence, young adult, middle age, which is really important, then uh, senior citizenship. Those are mostly culturally imposed. They're not biologically imposed. So if you... Uh, if you want to retire, uh, is that uh, biological? No, it's cultural. Because if you want to retire in Turkey, it's for, uh, at 45. You want to retire in uh, Australia, it's 70. Uh, middle age, uh, my colleague at, at Harvard, uh, Ellen Langer, has done some work very similar to what I do with context and how it affects uh, aging. And she found that people, she looked at why is it that some people look younger than their age and people look older than their age? And the first thing is, well, it's got to be genetics. It's not. It's how they determine what middle age is. The ones who look longer consider middle age being 10 or 15 years later. That's a marker. And the immune system, I argue, is biosymbolic. The immune system has morals. It responds to, to, uh, to our ethics. Uh, so all of that is really what I find from centenarians. And what I found was that I, I call them the causes of health. Gerontology studies the pathology of aging. I study the causes of health and the process of growing older. It's very different. Uh, and growing older is just the passing of time. That's it. Aging is what you do with that time based on the culture beliefs that you assimilate. And that's the difference. Okay. So we've been taught that certain things are going to happen with aging. We've been taught that that's in our psyche. Yet there are studies that show. So for instance, there's studies that show that when you exercise, it actually makes your cell, your skin cells and the rest of your cells 
younger based on, you know, the lab. They look in the lab and say, well, your cells don't look, you know, 50, they look 40 or whatever it is. Um, so is this, so people are looking for the hack. What can I do to make myself younger or not grow older? And so one is, you know, the big things are what you, how you exercise and what you eat. However, a lot of time, what I've noticed is that when you look at these people who are super old, maybe they get some exercise, maybe not, but certainly not like me going to the gym every day from an hour to two hours and exercising. And do they eat healthy food? Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, you hear people, they have this or that every day and, and they're absolutely fine. Now, we do have a problem with junk in this country. And one thing that I've learned is that those people are not eating junk, <laughs> okay? That's right. No, uh, they're not. So, so are, what, what can you say about physical activity and about diet based on what you've learned from these old, old people, but that are not really old? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, first is that exercise and good food are necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, it's, why? Because if you only do that and you do it to, uh, just to be healthy, you're doing it based on fear, fear of not being healthy. And that's what gets you. You could eat, you could eat healthy food and work out, but with a fear base, and it's going to have the type of hormones that are going to, to a certain degree, cancel out all of that. So what I look for is a, a lifestyle that indirectly triggers the causes of health, that triggers the gene expression that actually prevents the causes of, of, uh, of a pathology to be expressed. So one example, what, what is one of the causes of health? Number one, being able to set limits, emotional limits is very important, independent of how you eat or not. Emotional limits, if you don't set good emotional limits, your immune system doesn't have good emotional, doesn't have good limits. An example, my uh, mentor, George Solomon, who is the one who coined the word psychoimmunology and then called it psychoimmunology later and so forth, found that people that uh, HIV uh, positive men who are more assertive have more T cells than the uh, HIV positive men who are not assertive. And as you know, the T cells are affected by the uh, HIV virus. So if you're assertive, you set limits. Now, what does that mean being assertive? To set emotional limits. And the second part is for giving permission people not to like it. So I'll give you an example. <laughs> I love <laughs> it. Permission to not like so, it. So an those example. people... Yeah. Those people who feel like it's important for everybody to like them yes. are really dooming themselves to an earlier death. That's right. They, they're the caretakers that don't live very long. Uh, there was a, a uh, 102 centenarian that I interviewed, and they're always willing to help, but with limits. I said, uh, look, I'd really like to talk to you about to learn about the things that you're doing because you, you look really good. And he said, sure. When do you want to do it? I said, uh, Saturday. And he said, okay, Saturday, uh, sure. And I said, at, at 9 o'clock in the morning? He said, nope, at 9 o'clock I have tango lessons. We can do it at 2 o'clock. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You see, you set the limits, and then you give people permission to not like it. Uh, another person would say, okay, I'll give up my tango lessons so I can talk to you. You're giving up your joy to talk to somebody to meet their needs. And this doesn't mean that you're being selfish. This means you're being self-caring. Uh, and if there's an emergency, you certainly take care of that. But you're being self-caring, and then you're, you're giving options. He said, well, look, I can do it at 2 o'clock, but not at 9, because I'm not going to give up my tango lessons for you. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I met him at 2 o'clock. And the, the other cause of health is rituals. You have to have rituals. Uh, I, I uh, interviewed a, uh, a woman in Cuba 
a, a, a black woman in Cuba, by the way, they don't like to be called uh, African Cuban. They like to be called Cuban. <laughs> you know, they're totally different in that sense. Uh, anyway, so I said, what, is, what, is, what do you do? I didn't want to bias it and say ritual. I said, what do you do on a regular basis that you consider to be meaningful? And she said, well, before I go to sleep, I have a shot of rum. Uh, and I thought, well, it's got to be the quality of the rum. No, it's the ritual. Another one has a cigar when he wakes up in the morning. But the, you don't abuse rituals. You, you abuse routines. I, I pushed him and I said, well, why don't you have another cigar? I don't need another cigar. I just enjoy that. Why don't you have another shot of rum? I don't need it. So the, you see, you, you abuse what you need, not what you love. So when I work with obesity, I've done a lot of work with obesity, morbid obesity and, and uh, eating disorders. And the first thing that I do is teach them how to love food. And what they say is, I love food too much. No, you need food. You don't abuse what you love. You abuse what you need. And as you learn to love food, then you regulate and you enjoy rather than do it automatically to avoid anxiety or some other things. So all of these things that that I learned from him. Another cost of health is breaking bread with family or breaking bread with yourself with meaning. In fact, um, you know, there's studies that say that, well, if you live alone, uh, that affects uh, your, your blood pressure and you're going to have uh, hypertension only if you live alone without meaning. If you live alone with meaning, it bypasses that and you're fine. So all of it has to do with meaning, has to do with, uh, with what you're doing in life. Uh, so many, many causes. And that's what the book is about, talking about the causes of health and what is it that you can learn at any age to live to be uh, a centenarian, what I call centenarian consciousness at any age. So were these people that you were observing, were they clustered anywhere particularly? Because we know about quote unquote blue zones where people in those places tend to live longer lives. But now we're talking about clusters of people who are 100 plus. Are they clustered anywhere? Well, you, you can find them in, in clusters, but it's not necessarily that. For example, the U.S. has more centenarians than any other country. They have 80,000 centenarians. You find them in Sardinia, you find them in uh, Okinawa, Bilcavamba, all over the place, and d- different socioeconomics, gender, um, it, way of life. They some, but they do, one of the things that they do, what I, my, uh, <laughs> my mentor called it healthy narcissism. They all think that everybody loves them. And that's a very, <laughs> they think that I, I was interviewing uh, uh, an, um, a centenarian. They were having a little cocktail party for him. And, and, and this is this is the healthy narcissism, another cause of health. He walks in and there were some some ladies around and he said, he's, he's like 102, 103. And he said, did you notice how the women are looking at me? They love me. <laughs> so, you know, that it's more important to believe that you're loved than to be loved and not believe it. That the immune system responds to your belief, not to what 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 they tell you. But here's the healthy uh, uh, the healthy narcissism. And he said, here's the inclusive part. He said, but do, do you notice how beautiful they are? Inclusive in his narcissism. A narcissist, an unhealthy narcissist would say, look, these women are looking at me. I'm going to take advantage of them. Instead of, look how beautiful they are. And that's why they love me, because they're beautiful. So he's including uh, other people in the love and in the beautiful things that he does. That's a powerful cause of health. And those, are, those aren't the things that you talk about in, in longevity or gerontology. Wow. So explain, you make a distinction between growing older and aging. Talk about that distinction. Yes. Growing older uh, is something that's inevitable. Growing older requires time. Today, you're a day older than yesterday. Aging 
which is the important thing, is really what you do with that time based on the culture beliefs that you assimilate. That's what ages you mostly. There, there is some, there is some uh, wear and tear, but most of it is really what you believe to be. If, if, if you consider to be, uh, for example, people that retire without meaning live an average of four to five years after they retire. Why? Because they didn't learn joy. They worked in a job that they hated so they could go to Florida and watch the sunset or play bingo. That has no meaning. So you don't live very long or they get sick or they have dementia. Uh, meaning is extremely important in your life. What is that? What is meaning? Significance, that you exist and you're significant and that you have something to offer to others and others have something to offer to you. So really, the beauty is that the passing of time can be controlled based on how you're going to pass that time based on your cultural beliefs. So you have to look at the cultural beliefs so you can get out of that fishbowl. And one of the things that I tell people when I do workshops on this is I, t- I ask them, what portal are you in? Are you in the middle age portal? Are you in, in the portal of the, the elderly? And what happens is if you go into the middle age portal, let's say in, in, in your society or in your, your culture, middle age is 45. A day before you're 45, you're not middle aged. But that's day when you're 45, you're middle aged. You have to look middle aged, act middle aged, and get sick like the middle aged. And if you get out, they put you back into that portal. They'll say, uh, for example, you'll say, look, uh, I think I want to go back to college. I'm going to finish my PhD. No, no, no. You got to be thinking about retirement now. You're middle aged, and they bring, admonish you back. Or you're 80, and you fall in love with somebody and say, no, you're too old for that. But she, he or she wants you for your money. Uh, well, what do you mean falling in love? And centenarians, one of them, a 100-year-old centenarian said, I fell in love with this chick. She's a beauty. She's 60, but she lies about her age. (laughs) 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 They have a way of doing things that they're they're portalless. They're not in portals. (laughs) That's what I learned about them. I have a very good friend, and she's 65, and she has a, her boyfriend is 80. And I said, doesn't it feel good to be a hot young thing at 65? And she carries herself like a hot young thing. She says, I'm the hottest grandma anybody knows. So she acknowledges okay. that she's made some of those milestones in life, but she walks in in her high heels and her yes. you know, tight, her tight cl- appropriately. She doesn't look like a hoochie mama. She looks really cute. And you yes. would never guess that she's 65 years old. And uh, I, I mean, we, we love hanging out together because, you know, I, I'm, I'm the baby in the crowd and we all walk around and nobody thinks that we're, we're how old that we are. And it's, it's a, like, y'all, y'all can be old maids and frumpy and all that other stuff. Sure, but it, we ain't, we ain't doing But now you touched on dementia. Let's talk about dementia. People are in fear of losing their mind, of getting Alzheimer's, of all that type of stuff. Have you studied that and the people that tend to get it? You talked about meaning and not meaning. Can we predict, based on your model, who are really, who are, has there been studies on that? Based on the beliefs, the model, who's getting Alzheimer and who's not? Well, yes, there have been studies and then my own work. Uh, let, I'll tell you about my own work and then, then the studies so you can see. What I find in the people that, that, that develop dementia in a way that, that's a lot faster than the biology works is that they go from a place of high meaning to no meaning. So I'll give you an example of, 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 of patients that, that represent that group that I'm talking about. This, uh, I was seeing the husband who had uh, diabetes type 2, and he I was helping him maintenance and so forth, very controlling, overweight man. His wife, uh, they were both in their 60s, his wife was a professor of calculus. 
professor of calculus. To me, calculus is like magic. I, I can never, I can't, I can't go beyond algebra. So then she retires and she retires from that high meaning job. And she retires because of her age to take care of her husband, who was a despot. She would have to pick him up and she would have to put him in bed. And she became his nurse. Within six months, she had, quote, Alzheimer's. Wow. Dementia. And she had dementia and she had deterioration way because there's a way out. How can you want to live like that after you've had meaning in your life and working with young people? And I've seen that over and over and over again. Now, the research, David Snowden did some very significant research with uh, the nuns of Notre Dame who are nuns who are teachers and they have a high longevity. What he did is they, they agreed to be studied while they're alive and then post-mortem to do uh, the brain research and see what's going on. And what he found is that these women live long because they stay active uh, and they continue to teach. But what he found is after he did the, 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 or they did the autopsy, they found that there was a tremendous amount of deterioration in some of them after, uh, after they looked at the brain that did not correlate with their cognition. So therefore, cognition and the brain are not deteriorating equally. It depends on the context. So these women, although they should have had, there was some uh, hippocampus damage and some other area damage, and yet they were functioning uh, cognitively as if there was no damage. So the context has tremendous effect in bypassing the biology of deterioration to a certain degree. So it's not the tangles in the brain or even the, the pathology that's there that's where we talk about these physical things that we're all seeing the science, but you're telling me that science that we know is not right in these groups of people. Well, uh, the, uh, the deterioration is there, but the brain, as you know, has tremendous plasticity. And when you have meaning, the brain changes the process and, and compensates. I'll give you an example. There was a, there's a uh, researcher at Harvard that does a, a lot of work with brain, brain plasticity, and he was training teachers that were going to work with the blind. And in order to teach them, what he did is he blinded them for six weeks to see how they could function so they could understand. And as you know, the occipital part of the brain has to do with vision. If you show somebody in a, a functional MRI uh, some figures, the occipital is going to light up because it, it relates to it, it's what they call the visual cortex. Okay, yeah. now, they measured that before they did the, uh, the, blind, the, the blinding and after. When these people finished after six weeks, because the brain needs about six weeks to, to change the plasticity, they would show them any kind of figure, and the occipital didn't light up. Nothing happened. But if they touched something, the occipital would light up. So the, the, the occipital became a tactile cortex rather than a visual cortex, which is unheard of in, in when I studied neuropsychology. The cortex is uh, the visual is visual, and this is it. Well, com it completely became like the blind where the blind will have the touch, after six more weeks, the occipital returned to being a visual cortex again. So it's tremendous, tremendous plasticity. And I think that meaning is related to the plasticity. Wow, absolutely, absolutely amazing. Any other, okay, so here we are, we're hearing about, here's how you stay healthy and live a long time. Has there been any work on people who are on a pathway towards early death who put in place some of these principles and were able to reverse diseases or conditions or, I mean, are there cases of people who look like they had Alzheimer's in all the clinical sense and then they put meaning back in their life and it was reversed or any other stories like that? 
Well, it's very difficult once it gets to a certain point that you've lived that way. You've lived in that portal of, but with the uh, the the study with David uh, Snowden, what he found was that uh, before they knew um, they would have the nuns, uh, they would have uh, dinners and music, and they would talk. And then when some began to deteriorate, they would put him in another room with less lighting, more depressing, no music. And what he did is he reversed that, and he brought them back, and he saw some uh, some cognitive. Uh, um, improvements in, in these people. So what you want to do is you don't want to sentence somebody. I, I, I know a neurologist that when somebody goes and he gives them a diagnosis of, of MS, he'll say, uh, wait a minute, I'll be right back. And he brings them a wheelchair and he says, get used to this because you're going to be in the wheelchair. That's nocebo medicine. That's setting the person up because there's, a, there's, there's someone who supposedly knows what they're doing. So what you do is you begin to attribute things. For example, attribution is really important, the cost that you give to things. And in, in my model, the cost that you give to things is based on your, on your portal. So, for example, if you're 25 and you go from the kitchen to your bedroom and you forgot what you're going to do in the bedroom, so oh, I forgot, let it go. But if you're 75, oh, my God, Alzheimer's is the attribution. But what you do is you, you forget something, whether you're 25 or 85, don't worry about it. Just go to the place where you started, and that's where it was archived, and you'll remember it. Uh, but if you don't, then you'll say, well, it's got to be Alzheimer's. And what, and what causes it? What makes it worse? If you're stressed, you're going to have stress hormones that are going to affect your hippocampus, which is going to affect the dementia. Yeah. So I had an interesting experience. A couple weeks ago, I found out that I had a brain injury. I don't know when I got it, how I had it. Um, I was having some problems and one, somebody who was sitting in a coaching session with me, who's a professional and uh, has a really high level um, discovery that they've made said, Oh, I can help you. I didn't know I had it. And he found this on me and actually started correcting it with his technique. But I was like, Oh my gosh, I have these symptoms. And that explains why I have some of the symptoms that I had, but I think had I known that I had a traumatic brain injury, I'd have been totally different. I was attributing those symptoms to something completely different. Like, yeah. um, you know, like I had some weakness. I mean, he showed me central neurological signs that I had. That is when he did it to me, I was like, really? <laughs> okay. Yeah. But I cannot, I don't feel like I've had any limitations at all. I, yeah. I, can, I can tell you about some things, but based on the level of what he found and how much he found, I was quite surprised. And I understand. I, I studied neuroscience, my favorite area, before I went into everything. I'm an eye surgeon. I don't know if you do that because uh, you give the eye stuff, and I know about the occipital lobe and the visual cortex. And, but I do believe, I also believe in that you can, first of all, that nothing's impossible, you can do anything, and it's not a lie, it's true, and that if I, I can figure out how to do it, and I feel that the reason that I've done so well, despite having physical things that could have been limitations, is because I believe the biology of belief by Bruce Lipton, that I can do anything, I can fly if I want to, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, just, I just haven't figured it out. Yeah, exactly. If somebody tells me how to do it, I can figure out how to do it. And that includes the fact that I had a brain injury and it hasn't had any appreciable difference on my lifestyle. Now that I know about it, I'm like, oh, now I can fix that and I can be even more of a superwoman. I mean, that's how sure, I do Exactly. Um, well, there, there's some centenarians in, uh, in the caucus, what used to be part of the uh, <clears throat> Soviet Union, 
that they eat a tremendous amount of dairy. <clears throat> when you look at their arteries, the muscle, most of them are clogged, but they still ride horses and they have very little symptoms because of the meaning override. And I don't want to oversimplify and say that, well, meaning is everything. It's not. But there's a lot of evidence that says that it's not just the pathology of tissue. There's a lot more to us because we have a consciousness. For example, the immune system can identify the ethics of the culture. So, for example, there's a, this is a very recent research uh, that's come out. There's something called the CTRA, and for your, for your public, CTRA is, a, is a, a kind of an orchestrated response of the immune system of about, about 53 uh, genes express that uh, they have to do with uh, inflammation, uh, antiviral, uh, antibodies, and the immune system can, can determine the difference between hedonic pleasure, which is pleasure for the heck of it, no meaning or anything, or what they call eudaimonic pleasure, which is pleasure with meaning, pleasure with something that has to do with beyond. It can tell the difference. One has a better CTRA response than the other. And that's, that would be unheard of in, in conventional uh, neuroscience because uh, what does the immune system know about the uh, – and that's just one of the many examples of how it's always listening to the perception that you put. I think the immune system responds to the consciousness that you presented and confirm, and that's what it responds to. It waits for you to, uh, to uh, let it know how you're interpreting. For example, uh, if, you, uh, if you shame somebody, you're going to have inflammation. There's interleukin-2 and, and uh, tumor necrosis factor molecules that actually cause inflammation. But if you're from the um, Western cultures, like, for example, the U.S. and U.K., the very individualist, uh, the individual is considered to be someone that, that should grow and, and, and you can accept that somebody could be better than you. In other cultures, like in the Asian cultures, it's more like the, um, the group, the family, the, the organization. Well, if you shame somebody here, the inflammation happens if you are shamed as an individual. But if you go somewhere else, it, the response only happens if you believe that your group, your family, your country has been shamed, not you. So it's a... Uh, the immune system responding to the cultural interpretation that you make. So the way that I describe it is that the world is out there, the environment is out there with infinite possibilities of interpretation. And the culture will weave a fabric and our perception will respond to the fabric. And that's how a uh, way to, you know, visualize it. So how do we begin to get out of our culture, though? There's just so many cultural cues that start the moment we before, before one, yeah. even exit the womb, these yeah. cultural constructs are put in place. So how do we begin to get out of that? You're absolutely right. Well, let's say that you have diabetes type 2 in the family. And you're told, well, look, that's, that's what's going to happen. Here's the evidence. Your father has it. His, his brother has it. Your brother has it. <clears throat> the reason is not because of the genetics. It's you're, you're living the same life. You're eating the same food. You're in the same environment. And you believe in the same thing. That's it. Now, how do you get out? First, you become aware that that's a cultural portal. That's a, that's a genetic sentencing that doesn't exist. So what do you do? You look for outliers in the family. Uncle Joe is in the family, and he doesn't have diabetes. How does he live? And you begin to look at the outliers. Medicine doesn't study the outliers. Science doesn't study the outliers. They study the, the mean, and they do analysis of variance and covariance to look at the mean. But if you're out of the mean, that's called a, a nuisance variable. And all that information is it on the right side. So, for example, some doctors will say, 
well, look, uh, it, it's, it's ethical. I need to tell this person that they have six months to live. No, that's not ethical. That's terrible science. What you do is you really tell them ethically, look, on the average, people live with your illness six months. On the left side of the curve, something happens and they live six weeks. But on the right side of the curve, the outliers on the right side of the curve live 10 years. So what are we going to do? You and I are going to learn what these outliers do in order to break that genetic sentencing. But do doctors have the time to do that? They, they don't. They, they don't have the time. So they can't be teachers. They have to be technicians. Interesting. I, I love the diabetes story. It's so relevant to many of us. Yes. And it's especially relevant to me because I have a father who has diabetes and a mother who has diabetes to different degrees. My parents are doing differently. My mother has a very mild case. Very, And I feel she's the type of person that in a different medical system would be able to be controlled without medications. Yes. Um, but I, 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 I decided, I decided I'm going to be well. Not that I'm not going to have diabetes, I'm going to be well. And I think that's also a difference too. We have sure, to learn to talk yeah. in the positive, the not framing. what we don't want, but what we don't want. I'm not going to have diabetes. No, I'm going to be well because that's I'm just right. encompassing everything because there's other that's things. That's right. And, and, and there are a lot of myths, especially because of my area is, is the cultural, I look at the ethnicity and, and race and so forth. There's the myth that African-Americans uh, have a tendency to have a high blood pressure. Oh, and diabetes. Well, that depends on the culture. What causes that is the marginalizing and the prejudice that, that exists that actually keeps you on hyper alarm, and then it expresses genes. If you go to another place, like in Cuba, where they don't have, you know, if you're black, you're white, or you're whatever, they don't have this uh, blacks having uh, hypertension. It, it, it's the cultural components of it. Even telomeres can be affected by the, by the culture. And if you have time, you know, I can talk about that. So it's interesting. I, I want to talk about telomeres, but I want to tell you that back when I was doing my senior thesis in college, what my, my senior thesis was titled the psychosocial and socioeconomic, socioeconomic basis for hypertension in African-Americans. That's what my thesis was called. I don't want to tell you how many years ago now, but enough years ago that it was considered really out there and fringe. Oh, yeah. The reason why black people have high blood pressure is because of the stress that they have in their society. And here's the pathway that leads to that stress. And now people are validating that groups are sick because of that stress. And this African-American culture in America specifically is yes. one of the causes of these different illnesses that go through the cortisol pathway. Now, sure. so back when I did it, I don't know how many years ago, it was fringe. Yeah, you were way ahead of your time. Uh, because, you know, the, the monolith of, uh, of uh, physiology and, and uh, genetics and all that is the telomeres. Telomeres, uh, to the public, uh, I'll explain it. Uh, they're really the little caps that you have at the end of the chromosomes to keep them together. And also the thinking is that if you have long telomeres, which is what divides the cells, you're going to live longer. Well, number one, uh, there's centenarians with long telomeres and with short telomeres, number one. Number two, interestingly, there was a big study that was done with African-Americans, whites, and Mexicans. All right. And by the way, Mexicans are not a race, it's a country, but they, they, they call it, a, you're white or you're Mexican. It's completely no, yeah. uh, anthropological ignorance. But anyway, they looked at the, <laughs> the low level 
or are the socioeconomics of the whites, African-Americans, and the Mexicans. Low socioeconomics and mid-socioeconomics. What did they find? With the whites, the whites with the low socioeconomics had shorter telomeres than the ones who had uh, higher socioeconomics. So basically, they could buy telomeres by going up socioeconomically. African-Americans, whether they were on the lower side or on the upper side, same length of telomeres. They couldn't buy telomeres because of the marginalizing was there, whether you're middle class or, or lower class. And here's the interesting thing. Mexicans, the lower socioeconomics had higher and longer telomeres than their, than their second generation. And here's the interpretation. The uh, researcher didn't interpret it like that, interpreted it in a more, in, you know, biological. I interpreted it anthropologically, which makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> Whites can buy telomeres. If they go into higher socioeconomics, they get out of that stigma. Blacks can't because they have that stigma. Now, what happened with the Mexican? That was the key there, and that's another cause of health. The Mexicans in the lower socioeconomics stayed close with the family, and any time that other uh, cultures would uh, criticize them or would have prejudice, they would have righteous anger, and that's another cause of health, righteous anger. When the children went into acculturating and they were prejudiced, they saw it as shame. They could no longer be angry because they're trying to acculturate. And the shame and the anger is what determined the righteous anger, whether the telomeres were going to be uh, shorter or, or, or long. Where do you see that? Nowhere, because you can't bottle that. Hmm. So even so, telomeres can be affected by socioeconomics and culture. So you were way ahead of your time with the research you were doing. So telomeres, are, are they still associated with long telomeres, longevity? They are, but this is, this is questioning that. Because even the what they call the uh, the Methuselah gene and all that, some if you have that, you're going to be a centenary. Some have them, some don't. So all of that is being questioned. That those things may be may be necessary, but not sufficient. And the epigenetics can determine that. So, so all these companies that are selling supplements based on that, they will make your telomeres longer. Don't believe the hype. I think that's that's mostly hype um, because. Uh, it's it's not from the outside. It's from the inside, and what the culture is telling you. But I mean, that's amazing to see how uh, a cultural belief, without being aware of it, that kind of like the fishbowl effect, can affect your telomeres. And and the the most important thing is that George Solomon, the, my mentor, was the one who did what he called the righteous anger. And righteous anger is good for the immune system. And what is righteous anger? Being angry in a context where your innocence and your goodwill or the innocence of goodwill of others that you love is being uh, attacked or, or, or uh, it's being uh, uh, prejudiced. Righteous anger is good. If you take it out of context, it becomes chronic and then it's not good. So as far as the, the, when you look at, you looked at people who are from Mexico and then Caucasians are in America? Yes. And then African-Americans, which yes. I assume are black people in America. Right. Um, have you studied what makes longevity in those particular groups? Now, where the telomere stuff is debunked, according to what you're saying, but when you look at, let's say, African-Americans that tend to live longer, is there commonalities? Caucasians saying, Mexicans saying, I would assume it's going to be now different in the different groups, which is why we really need to do designer medicine and not generalize to everybody. Yes. Uh, well, uh, socioeconomics is important. You want to grow, but that's not going to do it. What really does it is the causes of health that work for blacks or Asians or whites, it's the same thing. 
uh, in the causes of health are the things that I talked about, setting good emotional limits, breaking bread with family without any inter uh, interruption from the, from the I self, that I call um, righteous anger, rituals, um, forgiveness is another one of the causes of health, and a tight family that you know that no matter what happens, you can count on that family. That's extremely important. All those things work for any race, for any ethnic group, because they're, they're, they're human universals that, that, that I find in whether you're black or white and the centenarians that, I, that I've studied. Well, I really appreciate this conversation. We went longer than expected, but it was so interesting. I think that everybody's going to appreciate listening to this because it gives us all hope that there's a way out and that our genes aren't our destiny and even our culture is not our destiny. So Mario Martinez, are, are you from, where are you from originally? Where does Martinez come I from? I was born in, in Cuba. My father was from Spain, from the, what they call the Celtic Spain. I used to kid around and I would say, Mario Martinez, Martinez is Irish. And I would kid around, well, actually it's Celtic, comes from Martin. In that part of Spain, they speak another language. They, they have the bagpipes and it's totally different. So that's where my, my father was from. Oh, how interesting. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm Spanish, uh, Hispanic, uh, and, um, and my mother's uh, Cuban-French, so it was a real interesting combination of, uh, of family. Uh, but that, that's really what got me started. I think the prejudice got me started. I remember uh, that when I was in the sixth grade, imagine the, that you could, they could never get away with that now. But I wasn't, no, I was in the seventh grade, and they were assigning philosophers to study. Uh, you, could, you could pick the philosopher you wanted. And I said... Well, I want to study Immanuel, Immanuel Kant. And in front of everybody, the teacher said, no, look, you're Hispanic. You people can't, uh, that's too, too complex for you. Imagine saying that to a kid. Now that guy would be fired. Well, I did do Immanuel Kant, and it forced him to, to give me an A. But those kind of things is what, what made me think, well, wait a minute, what, what is going on here? So finally I realized this is cultural. This is a cultural thing. But if you buy it, then you buy that you're, because you're Hispanic or Spanish or black or whatever, you're less than anybody else. If you buy it, you become that. <laughs> so that's probably what our advantage is here because we probably, both of us are the type of people that believe I can do anything. I don't care who you are. I can do anything. So you say, I'm doing Immanuel Kant and I'm going to get an A, which is probably that, that resilience Yes. We would really talk about. So your book is, I'm going to get it right here, The Mind-Body Self, How Longevity is Culturally Learned and the Causes of Health are Inherited. Mario Martinez, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for your great work. Thank you for listening to the Wellness Revolution podcast. If you want to hear more on how to bring wellness into your life, visit DrVeronica.com. See you all next week. Take care.